Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Conversing Labs. I'm your host, Paul Roberts. I'm the cyber content lead here at Reversing Labs, and we have another amazing episode to bring you today. With us in the Conversing Lab studio is Mikhail Barbero, who is the head of security at the Eclipse Foundation. Mikhail, welcome to Conversing Labs podcast. Thank you, Paul, and thank you for having me with you today at Reversing Lab. Yeah, it's really great to have you. And you are a person we're very excited to talk to because obviously one of the things that we're focused a lot on here at Reversing Labs is security of the software supply chain, security of open source ecosystems. And that's a lot of what you focus on at Eclipse Foundation. Before we get into Eclipse and the work you're doing there, could you just give our audience a little rundown on your own origin story and how you came to work for Eclipse? Of course. So I've been with Eclipse for eight years now. I started as a res engineer at the foundation, helping our project, building their pipeline, deploying the infrastructure for our project to, to have a CI CD. And eight to 10 years ago, it was not common for open source projects to have a free available CI CD systems. This what Travis CI was not there yet, so if you remember. So we were offering that to our projects. So that's how I got into the supply chain security issues, of course, how I got to know what are the pain points for our projects and what led me to my position today as a head of security at the foundation. My interest in securities have it started right from when I I was doing my studies at university. I've read this great a uh, paper from Ken Thompson um, uh, questioning the um, um, reflection on trusting trust. <laughs> and it, it was really an amazing paper that always kept somewhere in my mind. And for our viewers who might not know about the Eclipse Foundation or maybe have heard of it but don't know exactly what it does, could you just give us the, the um, short version of what Eclipse Foundation is all about? Sure. So we are an open source software foundation. So we are basically the host and the steward of uh, many projects. Currently, we have uh, more than uh, 425 projects uh, still at the foundation. It all started with the Eclipse ID, hence our name, the famous Java ID, but not only Java nowadays, integrated development environment for software developers. But we are now the home and the steward of many other projects. So still a lot centered around Java. So for instance, we are the host of Jakarta EE the new Java EE Enterprise Edition that moved to the foundation. We are also the steward of the Adoptium Working Group and its open JDK distribution, Eclipse Timarine. So a free, a free open source and secure open JDK distribution. And we are also the host of many IoT projects. So really not related to Java. For instance, we are the host of Eclipse Mosquito Project, which is an MQTT broker, very <coughs> famous and widely used in the IoT world. And we're also, for instance, the host of a new initiative called the Eclipse Software Defined Vehicle. The, so that's where all, many of the software vendors and the OEM of the automotive industry are joining to build the software stack for the car of tomorrow. Yeah, the population of devices that are running open source software has exploded in the last 20 years, right? So you talk about, yeah, automotive is a huge area of development and evolution of this. Talk just a little bit. So if you could explain in the last oh, 20 or 30 years, open source use has really grown and exploded. 
Can you give us a sense of like the security conversation around open source? Security has been a topic of debate and interest in the context of open source software. Back in the 90s, it was all is open source less secure than proprietary software, right? With many eyes, all bugs are shallow, that type of conversation. Certainly Microsoft had a whole line of argument about the fact that their proprietary software was more secure. But how have you seen the security conversation around open source evolve in the last couple of decades? So to me, this conversation about whether open source is more secure than proprietary software, I think it was more marketing against open source <laughs> than it was. Um, yeah, uh, clearly. <laughs> there was no real facts uh, be, be behind that. And we've seen that from the many numerous vulnerabilities that have been discovered over the years, back to an issue with OpenSSL, a hard lead, uh, or even Log4j recently. The responsiveness of the community and of the developers is really amazing and much more transparent that, no, very, very transparent. So it equals the best in the industry in proprietary software. So definitely not an argument to say that the open source communities and developers could lead to lesser security. The way I see how it evolved, mostly in the last two decades, is that open source has won. So it's everywhere, it's ubiquitous. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> but of course, with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility. And what the, the threat actors were before looking for the vulnerabilities, the zero days in open source, that was one of the, the things that you, you could be worried about that, yeah, a zero day is discovered by a threat actor and you don't know about. No, what, what we see is that open source is so ubiquitous that they are not looking for the zero days anymore, but they are trying to put zero days by themselves. So that's where they are attacking the supply chain of the open source software in order to be, to include malicious code backdoors and worms or Trojan or whatever, in order to amplify the attacks. And we've seen that here at Reversing Labs. We've uncovered a number of campaigns, some of them Python Package Index, NPM, Ruby Gems in recent years. These are obviously often designed to fool developers into incorporating malicious packages into their projects, often designed to look like legitimate packages. So there's often just a social engineering aspect of it. Could you, from the perspective of Eclipse Foundation, how do you see the risks right now within the open source ecosystem? Was this sort of background noise, low level of risk? Is it something that you see becoming a real issue around reliability for open source ecosystems and developers who are working with these platforms. What's your sense? So my sense is that it's growing and it's definitely getting more critical for projects to understand, for developers to understand the, the, those issues. The thing is that the, the tooling that is available to open source developers today um, have exploded. It's amazing what you can do now with uh, with cloud-based infrastructure that are provided for free for open source and you can do amazing things and you can release multiple time of days. That is unseen for the last decade. But with all those tools, all those tags that are brought into the, the supply chain of the open source software, open source developers, there is a, very often a misunderstanding of all the risk that is behind this very complex supply chain that you add to already complex software. It's really true. And I think 
education about these risks and how these attacks play out. Often when you dig into these attacks, they're mostly social engineering attacks, right? It's mostly around fooling developers into grabbing a, a malicious package. Sometimes it's more complex than that. We've seen more complex attacks. Do you really see, is this something that Eclipse Foundation sees as a priority of educating the developer community about the risk? Or is it, from your perspective, this is really on the platform providers to start looking for these types of attacks and, and weeding them out? What's the proper approach to reduce the impact of these attacks? Of course, our hope is that the platforms will eventually reduce the, the attack surface for, for those things. But of course, the, the, we see our approach to helping our projects to improve their security posture in two ways. Of course, education, trainings, best practices. But let's not hide ourselves behind the, the best will to, to improve the trainings and the, the, the skill sets. Most of the time, developers, they don't have the time or the will to actually improve their security skill set or to, to take trainings and so on. They, they, they want to deliver and they need to deliver new features to their users. So our approach is really in terms of empowerment. So whatever initiative we take, we try to always focus, okay, how do we make the life of our project easier while giving them more security? And the, the security mindset should come from disempowerment and not from enforcing any new processes or new regulations that are coming also or force training to cultivate this mindset of security. It's interesting because here in the U.S., we just saw the Office of the National Cyber Director, part of the Biden administration, actually putting out a public request for information on open source security. I know that there are similar efforts afoot in the EU as well <clears throat> on this and some new, ostensibly some new regulations that might impact open source maintainers and projects like the EU's Cyber Resilience Act. So I guess high level, right, governments are starting to take an interest in open source security and the security of open source ecosystems. That's good in a way because it is an issue, but not good if it becomes overly regulated. From the Eclipse Foundation standpoint, or just maybe your standpoint personally, what's your thought on these efforts in both the US, the EU to start having government regulators more attuned to these issues around open source security? And, and what would be, in your mind, the best approach for you know, governments to take? So first of all, as you said, the, the fact that the governments and the, the regulators actually notice that open source uh, is critical is something good yeah. and may, may help with the sustainability issue that we've been having for many years. After that, the, the Eclipse Foundation is a not-for-profit organization um, based in Brussels, based in Europe, but we are a global organization, right? We, we, we have members' organizations both in the US and EU, in Asia as well. So we, we are looking at all those regulations as a global organization. Regarding those two, two approaches, because they, they are quite different between the EU and the, the US, um, we are pretty happy with the approach of the US the the, the cybersecurity strategy that have been that has been published a couple of months ago is um, really national cybersecurity strategy yeah. that they came out exactly with yeah. thank mm -hmm. you it really recognizes that 
open source is critical and must be kept on the side on any regulation. You should not put the burden of any additional regulation on the open source software developers. Um, and the same for this RFI um, from the National Cyber Director for feedbacks from the industry, but also not-for-profit organizations and being open about gathering uh, interest and feedbacks, it's really a good approach. We are very supportive of that. We're preparing also an answer to that, focusing on what we think is important, empowerment, create a, a mindset of security, a culture around uh, cybersecurity for the developers and so on. On the other side of the pond in Europe, in Europe, the CRA, which is what is our, our main interest these days or what we are looking after the, the most. So the Cyber Resilience Act, it is still under discussion. And while we are very supportive of the initiative to improve cybersecurity for the, the citizens uh, and the industry, um, it, the, the, the software industry has been a non-regulated industry for ever. And we see that it will become a regulated industry. The, the thing is, the, um, moving from a non-regulated industry to a fully regulated industry without doing harm to <laughs> this industry can be very hard. And our thinking is that the Cyber Resilience Act has some misstep along the way, especially around open source. They try to cut out open source in the text initially from the commission, they were saying that any open source that is done outside of commercial activity should not be regulated by the Cyber Resilience Act. Unfortunately, the commercial activity wording is very specific and has a very clear definition in the EU regulations. There is a, a text called the Blue Guide with those definitions that they, they, the Commission have to reuse. That's part of the harmonization of the laws across Europe. And it says that basically anybody is under a commercial activity. So an open source foundation is doing a commercial activity because it has members. And, basically and basically, sort of if you collect money, you're doing commercial activity. Yeah, exactly. You are the manufacturer or the, the distributor of the open source. So you have the liability and the responsibility of any uh, of applying or complying with the Cyber Resilience Act. Hmm. So the initial text would exclude only the hobbyists and the charities, but basically everybody else, industries, software developers employed by a company and developing the open source software uh, for while being employed would be covered and not-for-profit organization like Open Source Foundation, Open Source Software Foundation would be covered and would have the responsibility of complying with the Cyber Resilience Act. And of course, it could really harm the world industry. The natural reaction for that is that, okay, as a company, should I continue to tell my developers to contribute to open source if I only get responsibility from that. It took 15 years for the industry to understand that contributing to open source is actually low risk. The legal uncertainty was pretty low, even though it started with all the licenses, threats that it could be a threat for the, the industry, but it has been understood that it's not anymore. But this whole CRA thing could definitely lead to some more questions about contributing to open source or even consuming open source. Is there a compromise or a resolution for that tension? Because you raise a really good point, which is a lot of the contributions, a lot of the development in open source is sponsored indirectly by corporations or nonprofit organizations that are 
using it and also contributing back to the community. That's one of the, one of the whole ideas behind the open source movement. And you don't want to discourage that by heaping liability on them. On the other hand, you need more accountability in the software industry in general to start dealing with some of the bad practices that we see all around us. So what is the compromise in your mind between that? Encourage private sector contributions to the open source community, but don't turn a blind eye to poor quality contributions, buggy and secure code, that type of thing. So we, we are very supportive of the initiative as a whole again. Uh, and that's why we at the foundation now have the security team that I'm leading now. 18 months ago, there was zero staff dedicated for helping our project to improve cybersecurity. So we are now a, a team of five. And uh, so we are supportive and we want to move the needle to better security. The way we see the how the CRA could be improved is to move the responsibility to the commercial entities where eventually monetize the open source component projects. So put some products on the market and monetize those products. So we don't want a carve out for the open source because that right. wouldn't make sense. Right. But the responsibility and the liability should be put on the people actually. Right. So if you're a multi-billion dollar corporation, you're using, you're contributing to this open source project because you're using that code in your own project, in your own products, then, okay, then you're part of the liability regime. But if you're a not-for-profit group that is doing this, not generating any revenue from your contributions, then you should be exempted. That's what we try to advocate for. We are in touch with people in Brussels and uh, yeah. the, the, the various commissions and committees that uh, are involved into those things to, to try to help them understand why we think it's important. In the meantime, you raise these issues, the powers that be, the folks considering this more or less ignored that and uh, gave, uh, I think, tacit approval to this Cyber Resilience Act. Where, where does it stand now legally? Is it law? Is it just moving along? And is, is there another opportunity to address these concerns before it becomes the official regulation? Or where are we? Agencies in Europe or regulation in Europe is quite complicated. So the commission initially proposed the, the law and it has been discussed in the parliament. So we've elected a member of the, of the parliament elected by the people in Europe, by the various countries and by the council that is composed from representative of each member states. And they come to uh, each to a set of amendments at the beginning of the summer. And now they need to group all together. So the commission, the parliament and the council in what they call a trilogue in order to get to a final text. So we are at this stage now. So it's pretty late in the game, but we are already seeing some, the version from the council is pretty good to open source. They made some amendments that are really what we are advocating for. And we've heard that they, they, they are continuing to discuss these days to bring those versions together. So we still don't know exactly how it will end up as a final text, but something that is pretty sure is that we will have the law being passed by the end of, by, by the next summer. Because in May next year, there will be uh, new elections in Europe. 
uh, of course, they want to complete the law before the next elections. Otherwise, he would have to come back. What do you think the practical impact would be? Let's just say the um, Cyber Resilience Act just goes forward as it's been written, no changes. What do you think the practical impact would be on the open source uh, community, on the Eclipse community and the activity that goes on now? So if it passes as is with the responsibility and liability being put on the Eclipse Foundation, we would have to stop releasing many software for a while and find out how to comply without risk with the, the regulation for sure. But the, so that, that would be, of course, an issue for us. But the, more generally for the industry and for the open source in Europe, th that would be even more problematic. We can already hear some voices, especially from the U.S., that says that maybe if they have to take responsibility by providing open source software that could be downloaded from Europe, they will just geofence Europe from downloading their software so that they have no responsibility. So imagine Europe without access to Kubernetes or Linux. And, and this tough. really is the this is the software that really under that supports so much of the technology that we use, both cloud, on our devices, you name it. The flip side of this, which is re regulations that may discourage private companies or for-profit organizations from contributing to open source, is the, the flip side of that is that there is a very long tail in the open source community of hobbyists and individuals who have created and maintained open source libraries and packages that are very widely used by uh, for-profit entities and, and so on. That has a security impact merely in the sort of resource sense, which is these are very widely used, but often they're maintained by a solo developer or a small group of developers. They don't have volunteering their time really. And security often falls down on the list of priorities for them, or they're just not able to really keep on top of security. What do you think is the solution for that problem, both for the open source community generally, and also for companies that are using open source and relying on open source software? So it's not really a new issue, even without the security problem, just keeping the, those open source projects running has always been a sustainability issue for open source. So just that now we had or the, the, the financial impact of an issue is even bigger. So we don't have any magical solution to apply, but we've seen a couple of initiatives that we really like and that we really would like to encourage all governments to replicate. And one of them, for instance, is the Sovereign Tech Fund. So it's a German initiative um, where basically the, the German government created a pool of money to identify what are the software that are critical to Germany and European ecosystem. All systems that are, that are based on those open source software. And the, the very good thing about that, because usually when governments put funds to help open source, they usually want for those funds to be given to German companies or German developers or their, their own national thing. And with this initiative, they don't actually care about who gets the money at the end. They care about how dependent the German government the German industry and the European industry is dependent on the open source software that is being funded. And we think that it's a pretty good initiative that should be replicated across Europe and also in the US. 
this, this note this notion of a sovereign fund that that should we should just reproduce that across other economies basically yeah exactly open source project to address the security issues for if you were to speak to development organizations or developers who are looking to defend themselves against open source risks or threats get themselves oriented around this as we've seen growing problem what would your advice to them be don't try to do this alone there are plenty of frameworks available even vendors that that can help you but more specifically around frameworks because it really helps developer company projects to to structure how to define their threat model and to, how to address it. We really promote uh, the foundation, the NIST-SDF, the Secure Software Development Framework, but also SALSA, the SLSA framework that is hosted at the OpenSSF, the Open Secure Software Foundation. We like SALSA better for developers because it's very more pragmatic. It's more technical and closer to what the developers have to handle on a daily basis. SSDF is closer to what you would need to do for procurement. But th those frameworks are really helpful to structure uh, how to address the cybersecurity risk. But even without those frameworks or those structures, one thing that when we start to talk about cybersecurity risk and the supply chain, the risk in the software supply chain, is about checking the provenance of everything you're consuming. Mm -hmm. That's very the basi basics, uh, but you need to understand and know what you consume and what you deliver. So, so software bill materials, that type of um, uh, approach? Exactly. Soft bill of material is one way to identify what you're consuming, um, but it's... I would say that it's mostly for uh, your downstream users that it's useful. So you need to deliver it as part of what you supply. But by provenance, I think it's more in the way the Salsa framework actually defined it. So it's really about, okay, you get a binary, but where does it come from? How mm -hmm. has it been built? Um, where is the source? Um, for, for, from what sources uh, has it been built? And having an attestation, something that is... Um, uh, non-falsifiable, uh, that, that is signed and um, verifiable, that's very important. And moving towards a model where the package repositories, package registries include those provenance information will really help us harden the whole supply chain of open source software. And Mikhail, final question. If viewers are listening to this conversation, want to learn more about Eclipse and get involved with Eclipse Foundation, what can they do? Where should they go? So, of course, you can go to the Eclipse.org website where you can see all of our projects and our working groups where our members are organized to drive some of our projects. And we are also in, in the process of creating an initiative around cybersecurity called the Eclipse Cyber Risk Initiative. So we are gathering interest into participating in that to help us sustain our efforts into improving the security posture of our, of our projects but also help us prioritize what are the next steps that we should be taking to help our members and help our projects to improve their posture. Mikhail Barbero of uh, Eclipse Foundation, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Conversing Labs podcast. It's been great having you. Thank you, Paul. It was great to talk to you.